0: You've probably seen the famous monkey selfie photo that went viral recently. If not, get to a search engine, type in monkey selfie, and have a look. But what you probably don't know is that the legal battle over those photos may have given us a glimpse as to what could be right around the corner for copyright law and even works created using artificial intelligence. We have a Jones Day panel here to explain. I'm Dave Dalton. You're listening to Jones Day Talks Intellectual Property. British photographer David Slater found himself the subject of a PETA driven lawsuit, that's the people for the ethical treatment of animals, over who is the true copyright holder of the wildly popular monkey selfie, him or Naruto, the Indonesian monkey who took that photo. But there may be unexpected implications in the aftermath of Naruto v. Slater that could broadly affect copyright laws. Joining us to explain are two partners from Jones Day's intellectual property practice. From Detroit office, we have Emily Tate, And joining Jones Day Talks for the second time, Meredith Wilkes is here from Jones Day's office in Cleveland. Welcome to you both. Meredith Wilkes, last time you were here, we were talking about the outcome of the Blurred Lines appeal with Pharrell Williams and uh, Robin Thicke and how they lost their appeal to the Marvin Gaye estate. And today we're talking about non humans not having copyright protection. What is going on in the intellectual property world? It seems like this whole part of the law is a real state of flux evolving very quickly. Have you ever seen anything like this before? What's happening?
1: It's a great question, Dave. Um, we've seen a lot of copyright activity recently at the Ninth Circuit. That's not a huge surprise. The Ninth Circuit, of course, is home to Hollywood and, and recording artists and the recording industry, so that the Ninth Circuit is hearing a lot of intellectual property cases and deciding a lot of intellectual property cases is not per se, unusual by any stretch of the imagination. But as we talked about in our last podcast, in the Blurred Lines case, the copyright statute covers huge, huge areas. Um, You know, it it covers any original work of authorship fixed in a tangible medium of expression. So you can imagine the subject matter that would be covered by that, anything from, you know, sculptures to books to music. So we talked about how it really covers a broad, broad area ripe for folks to try and secure and protect rights. And we also talked about how there is somewhat of a state of uncertainty, particularly with respect to copyright law. And I think this most recent decision out of the Ninth Circuit exemplifies what we hinted at in our last podcast, which was maybe there's a need for some further clarity in the Copyright Act. And I think that this decision, this most recent decision, highlights that, uh, particularly in view of the facts sort of leading up to Mm what happened in in the monkey selfie case
0: we're going to talk more about the ramifications of the decision in a moment and what we might be able to read into that and how it might even apply to other industries okay so just to be clear it was mr. Slater's camera the monkey takes a camera takes a selfie and even though it was Slater's camera PETA thinks that maybe the monkey somehow authored created owns the photos that's what we're looking at here.
1: That's exactly what we're looking at, and and, an interesting question to ask, because if it were you and me, um, and I took the photo, then I would own the copyright. And so, essentially, what Peter was saying is because Naruto took his picture, because he took the selfie, that he then owns the copyright, and they were then asserting Naruto's copyright rights against the publishers of the book.
0: Okay, which leads to my next question. You mentioned something before, I think it was Next Friend Standing. Explain what that is for a moment. And how does that relate to this particular case?
1: This is an interesting twist in this case for a bunch of different reasons, um, the first of which is that the Ninth Circuit took a very dim view on the fact that PETA was claiming to be a next friend of Naruto. And, and I'll get into a little bit more detail on that in a second. I think it's, it's better that we step back for a second and say, what is this concept, right, of next friend? Courts recognize and the Federal Rules of Civil Procedure recognize that sometimes the actual plaintiff can't be present in a lawsuit, and so the rules allow for what we call next friend. And what typically is required under Rule 17 is that the actual petitioners is unable to litigate on their own, either because they have some sort of mental incapacity or disability, or they don't have access to the court. That's the first requirement. And it would seem in this case, right, that Naruto fits that bill. But then the next friend has to have a significant relationship with and is truly dedicated to the best interest of the petitioner. And the Ninth Circuit found against PETA, actually on both fronts, the court found that first, Rule 17 of the federal rules of civil procedure don't apply to animals. They don't qualify for next friend status. And then also the court was hypercritical that PETA was not really acting in the best interest of Naruto, and in fact was really trying to advance their own interests at Naruto's expense.
0: That seemed to be a pretty popular sentiment. and PETA Does a lot of great things, don't get me wrong, but when I read the opinion and even some of the press coverage came down on PETA pretty hard, you agree with that?
1: I agree, and absolutely, I'm an animal lover, and PETA does do great things for animals, but I am really drawn to a lot of what appeared in footnotes in in the Ninth Circuit opinion, where the court says puzzlingly, and I can't even get the word out properly, while representing to the world that animals are not ours to eat, wear, experiment on, Use for entertainment or use in any other way, PETA seems to employ Naruto as an unwitting pawn in its ideological goals. That's a pretty powerful sentiment from the, the Court of Appeals and how they felt about what PETA was doing, I think procedurally, in manipulating the case.
0: Absolutely, absolutely. They were not subtle in their opinion, that's for certain. You know, you've got a British photographer in Indonesia where all this happened, and then the case was heard in U.S. courts. Was jurisdiction a factor in how this all worked out?
2: The reason this case even happened or was even permitted to happen is that the monkey was a quote foreign author. Had the monkey not been a foreign author and been a U.S. author, so a monkey at the Detroit Zoo, for example, they would have had to get a copyright registration before bringing suit. And they would have gotten dinged by the Copyright Office if they listed a monkey as the author.
0: Well, there is a photograph. I'm looking at it as we speak. Someone or something created it. Who's the author? There is no author.
2: Right. And that's like the thing of if he's not the author and the monkey's not the author, then it's sort of like public domain, which is what, you know, some entities and and sort of bloggers, et cetera, have taken the position Mm -hmm. on.
0: Meredith, back to you. IP cases settle often. Last September, Mr. Slater and PETA came to an agreement, a settlement, where I believe it was 25% of the proceeds moving forward from the photograph were going to be donated to some wildlife charity, I believe. So the Ninth Circuit decided to hear this case anyway, didn't abandon its jurisdiction. Why is this relevant?
1: It's an interesting position to be in. Um, Notably, in this case, the settlement agreement at issue didn't include Naruto, (laughs) And the Ninth Circuit made mention of that, and I think in part in connection with its discussions about how PETA really wasn't acting as a next friend to Naruto. Typically, when parties settle an IP dispute, the court no longer has jurisdiction because there's no active case or controversy in front of the court. In this case, because the case or controversy before the court was whether or not there was a case or controversy, meaning whether or not there was even standing to bring the lawsuit, the court did have jurisdiction to continue to decide the matter, and the court could rule on the matter. It is a warning sign to parties out there to be thinking through what the impact of the settlement might be and maybe to provide some sort of continuing obligation so that the court, if they want an appellate decision, so that the court can hear the appeal and also be mindful of the fact that if they're trying to keep the court from rendering a decision, which is what the Ninth Circuit has sort of accused PETA of doing in this case, if you're trying to keep the court from rendering a decision, being very careful in the settlement agreement, first of all, to include all the parties that are okay. in issue, and then taking steps to make sure there is no active case or controversy so that the court does not have jurisdiction any further to hear the appeal.
0: Let's bring in Emily Tate for a second.
1: Emily, there
0: are implications far beyond the monkey selfie. Uh, As much fun as it is to talk about this, there are a lot of companies out there that are investing a lot of time and a lot of resources and a lot of effort into things like artificial intelligence, software, other processes, for lack of a better word, that create product. What does a company do potentially to protect itself from a situation like this? Yeah, it was AI generated, but geez, we still own it.
2: Yeah, thanks, David. It's a very, very complicated issue right now, and obviously one that is evolving constantly. I think as a threshold matter, copyright law has struggled to keep pace with technological advancement. You know, typically or historically, copyright cases were involved works that we traditionally think about when we mm-hmm. think of creative expression. So a novel, a painting, a work of music, increasingly copyrighted source code has been an incredibly litigated area, extremely complex, and very challenging for companies because of the way that software tends to evolve over time. and mm-hmm. What I mean by that is that software is is a constantly evolving beast. There's many versions to software. It keeps growing. There's bug fixes. There's many, many adjustments that go into software. And many times that sort of version control proves challenging when a company discovers that there has been an infringement, unlawful copying of its software, and they suddenly realize they don't have a registration with the Copyright Office. And there are a lot of challenges just with software as it relates to copyright. Obviously, the additional challenge here relates to artificial intelligence and the notion that the AI itself could, in essence, generate code or participate in the creative expression of that code or a subsequent version or a particular aspect of that code. And so it's something that companies just need to be thinking about.
0: So if a client were to ask, what would you recommend?
2: At a high level, a really important point for all companies to bear in mind is to really connect that expression to a human author. And so it doesn't necessarily mean that every aspect of that source code would need to be written by a human sitting down at a desk or a computer. But creating a nexus to a human being would seem to be quite important. I the think the so. Copyright Office in the United States has issued some guidelines and a compendium. And while those aren't the law, The copyright has a human authorship requirement, and in addition to saying that a photograph taken by a monkey is not eligible for registration, the Copyright Office says that it will not register works produced by a machine or mere mechanical process that operates randomly or automatically without any creative input or intervention from a human. And so I think a really big question mark or gray area is going to be, what does that mean? To not have any creative input or intervention from a human being. And importantly, in this case, the Ninth Circuit framed the issue as whether a monkey may sue humans, corporations, and companies for damages and injunctive relief for claims for copyright infringement. So it took sort of a narrow framing of the issue as to animals, but obviously, you know, the holding of this decision could potentially have a broader application.
0: Meredith, most of the discussion and attention regarding this matter was about who holds copyright, who can own the copyright. What are we ignoring here in this broad discussion about copyright ownership? Is there something that's being underreported, underanalyzed?
1: Well, we're talking about a really broad base, of course, right, as to this concept of what constitutes an author, right, so that we can determine whether or not the Copyright Act even comes into play. And the ownership issues that are discussed in the majority's opinion, the concurring opinion points out a really important factor, I think, that is going to continue to be discussed going forward. And it's this idea of the fact that with rights come responsibilities, that if you grant rights to someone, an intellectual property right or a physical property right, there are liabilities associated with that, whether that's landowner liability for someone who trips and falls or Copyright owner responsibility for being the owner of that intellectual property. There are responsibilities and liabilities that also attach to rights, and certainly that's not something that can be held by an animal. It's a different situation with a corporation, right? Corporations are comprised of humans, and so they can pay taxes and and be held liable. But animals, that's a bit of a stretch, and and the concurring opinion really raises that issue.
0: Again, that wasn't even talked about before, but something that I think is is this part of the law continues to be evaluated and maybe re-legislated at some point these are things that need to be addressed if non-humans might at some point have copyright protections
1: Well that's exactly right yeah it's it's resolving the issue of what duties come with having and, and granting intellectual property rights Talk about the
0: impact of this case or what the implications might be is it limited or could this really affect how copyright laws are interpreted or even revised looking into the future what's your take
1: so, obviously, the courts can only address the issue that's squarely before it, right? Their, their job is, is to interpret laws and not to write them. So, to the extent we're going to see a massive overhaul of the copyright laws, um, that has to come from Congress. Mm-hmm. What we have seen, right, are some fact scenarios that are starting to drive some change. And, in fact, the facts leading up to this case in particular, the Monkey taking the, the selfie, led the Copyright Office to rewrite some of its internal compendium in 2014, and and the Copyright Office rarely does that, to require that the author be a quote-unquote human to qualify for copyright protection in the United States. So sometimes it takes cases like these to drive change in the legislative branch and to drive change in terms of intellectual property laws. A creative person may try and expand the holding beyond how the Ninth Circuit characterized it, as Emily pointed out, and say, listen, This holding can stand for the proposition that the author must be a human. That means no animals. That also means no robot. Or someone on the other side of it may look to constrain it and say, listen, this is a case that is very narrow on its facts. The court was dealing specifically with the narrow issue of the next friend status of Naruto and PETA and with the very specific issue of whether or not a monkey can qualify for essentially copyright protection to bring a claim under the Copyright Act. So I think time will tell in terms of how it plays out and and the creativity of both sides. But at the very minimum, facts and cases like these start to drive more awareness, which in turn could lead to developments. And I think folks will agree, particularly those in the software space, that there is a need for some sort of changing and some sort of overhaul for the Copyright Act to start to catch up with the emerging technologies.
0: Well said. Great summary. You know, hard to imagine, you know, this monkey's just out there being a monkey, playing with a camera, and now it's got implications for copyright law. For more information on intellectual property at Jones Day, visit jonesday.com and click through to the Intellectual Property Practice page. Subscribe to Jones Day Talks on Apple Podcasts, Android, Google Play, or Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please rate and review. Thanks again to Emily Tate and Meredith Wilkes. And I will leave you today with this. No animals were harmed during the production of this audio program. Thank you for listening. I'm Dave Dalton. We will talk to you next time. Thank you for listening to Jones Day Talks. Comments heard on Jones Day Talks should not be construed as legal advice regarding any specific facts or circumstances. The opinions expressed on Jones Day Talks are those of lawyers appearing on the program and do not necessarily reflect those of the firm. For more information, please visit jonesday.com.